Let's turn to Hebrews if you haven't done that already. And we're going to jump right into our study. But today I wanted to uh, give sort of an introduction to uh, the epistle. And uh, we'll look at verse one and, and a little bit of the second verse. But then uh, next week we'll, we'll really dive into uh, the text itself. Uh, but today wanted to do just uh, a bit of a introduction and, and sort of an overview. So uh, Hebrews, well, first of all, let me say Hebrews is one of uh, my favorite books in the Bible. Now, uh, you know, all of us, I'm sure, have certain books of the Bible that, that just seem to stand out. Um, when you read them, they're just a kind of a unique thing that happens. Hebrews is that for me, along with some other uh, books, but, but Hebrews always stands out. And I think from the earliest days of being a Christian, I've always been drawn to it. I've always loved it. I've taught it a few times. I haven't taught it for about 20 years. And so uh, I just, as I shared before, I sensed as we were uh, transitioning out of Ephesians that, that Hebrews was the place that uh, the Lord would lead us. So I'm excited because it's uh, one of my favorite books Hebrews is one of the great theological epistles of the New Testament. Now, when I say theological, what I mean is that it it's, goes into um, quite a bit of theological depth uh, about the, the work of God, the redemptive work of God, what Jesus did and all of the implications of it. It's, it's similar in theological depth to Romans. Uh, not every book in the New Testament is uh, deeply theological. Many are, but not every one is. Some of the epistles in the New Testament are uh, very practical rather than theological. James, for example, is a very practical epistle. 1 John is a very practical epistle. Uh, but the deeply theological epistles are um, Romans, Hebrews, Galatians is that to a certain extent. Ephesians is that as well. Uh, Revelation would be that also. Uh, but as, as we approach it, we need to understand that it is um, one of the great theological epistles of the New Testament. Hebrews draws deeply from the Old Testament. It, it's in Hebrews that you have more than any other New Testament book, you have just this constant referencing back to the Old Testament. Now, again, some other books do that um, quite a bit as well, Romans in particular. Uh, I think, I'm going just by memory, but I think that there are only two epistles in the New Testament that do not quote or reference the Old Testament, and they are Second and Third John. They're very small little epistles, and uh, neither one of them have any quotations, or I don't even think there's any reference back to the uh, Old Testament there. But in every other New Testament book, there are references to Old Testament uh, figures, historical events, and quite often there are Old Testament quotations, direct uh, quotations. Now, Hebrews is uh, deeply rooted in the Old Testament and shows that Jesus in his person and work is the uh, fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. So a study of this epistle 
One of the things that I think is going to be valuable to us as we study through it is that it is going to immerse us in Scripture. It's just going to, you know, we're, we're really going to be uh, very scripturally rooted here because, again, uh, even though it's a New Testament book, it's constantly taking us back to the Old Testament. And as it's immersing us in Scripture, it will be reminding us of the great eternal truths that even though often obscured by the insanity of life in a sin-sick world, are nevertheless guiding history toward God's intended end. And I think that's important. There's so many things that are going on in our world today, so many crazy things that are happening, and it's easy to get distracted by those things, and it's easy to get lost in the mire of all of that and, and to forget that regardless of what's happening among the nations, regardless of what's happening with the politicians, regardless of what's happening with the courts, that God is moving uh, things, history is moving in the direction that God said it would go. It's moving toward an intended purpose and end. And, and this book is gonna remind us of that. You know, just being in Israel, I was reminded of that again. Uh, you see all of the things that are happening, all that's going on in the Middle East, you know, of course, with the ISIS and uh, all of these things. And yet when you're there and you see, um, you know, you walk through a, a gate that Abraham walked through 4,000 years ago, or you see the synagogue where Jesus taught, or you're there at the Sea of Galilee where Jesus walked on the water and calmed the storm, it brings everything into perspective. You, you just walk away going, oh yeah, right, God is in control. These people should not be in this land. From the human standpoint, there's no human explanation for why the Jews are back in the land today when you think of the international opposition to their presence there. But again, it's a reminder that God is in control of history, not men. And this study through Hebrews, uh, I think, is going to keep that fresh before our eyes. Uh, the second thing I want to let you know about Hebrews is that it is the only New Testament book that is not directly connected to a human author. So all of the rest of the books, of course, we've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and so forth, and then we know that Luke wrote Acts, and then we've got Paul's epistles and the epistles of Peter and John and James and Jude and and all of that, this is the only uh, epistle in the entire New Testament where there's no human author connected to the epistle. Now, scholars have theories about who wrote it. Some are very uh, convinced that Paul was the author. Some others think that uh, maybe Barnabas was the author or maybe Apollos was the author. Uh, but th that's all speculation. It's all just, I, I have my own thoughts about it as well. But at the end of the day, I think what is clear is that this, um, this failure to identify a human author was intentional. And it's meant to convey that God is the one who is speaking here. You see, these Hebrews, they needed to remember that God was speaking to them. And so the, the author is in, intentionally um, not identified. Uh, 
this epistle was first written to the Hebrews, and specifically Jews who had initially embraced the good news of Jesus the Messiah with joy and fervent devotion, but were now, due to rejection, persecution, and a seeming delay of God's plan, contemplating a return to the comforts and security of Judaism. Now, we don't know the exact date that this letter was written, but let's just say that it was written 20 years after the ascension of Christ. And Jesus ascended roughly 32, 33 AD. So here we are. Let's put ourselves in, in the place of these Jewish believers. It's, it's 52, 53 AD, 20 years have passed. They've put their faith in Jesus the Messiah, uh, fully expecting God's blessing upon their life, uh, fully expecting that very soon Jesus would come and establish that Davidic kingdom. And yet, at this point, none of that has happened. As a matter of fact, at this point, they're, they're being ostracized from their community. Uh, they're being excluded. They're being persecuted. They're losing their, uh, their, their jobs. They're uh, being kicked out of their homes. And the Jewish community goes on with business as usual. The temple is still there. It's this amazing structure. The priesthood is still intact. People are going up and worshiping at the various feasts and all of that. And these guys are excluded. And they're experiencing this harassment, this persecution. So what's happening here is there is now a temptation for them. They're starting to rethink their commitment to Jesus as the Messiah. Well, maybe... Maybe we need to go back to Judaism. That's what they would have been thinking at this point. This epistle is an explanation of why that would be a fatal mistake. And so the, the author is going to argue against that kind of reasoning, showing that that would be a fatal mistake for a number of reasons, one of them being that all Judaism was merely a shadow of the greater reality that is Christ. So the author is basically saying to them, to leave Christ and return to Judaism would be to leave the substance for the shadow. Everything in Judaism was pointing to Jesus. It was pointing to the Messiah, now to, and, and he's the substance. So if you're going to go back to that, you're, you're going back to the shadow. And of course, the shadow has nothing to offer. But the epistle is also a strong warning or actually a series of warnings that to turn from Christ back to Judaism is to put oneself outside of God's grace and under his wrath. What the author wants them to know for sure is that if they were to make a move in that direction, they would be departing from the living God. They would be exchanging a relationship with the living God for just a ritualistic system at this point because God was no longer in the system. But yet, remember, it would look to them like God was still in the system because it was all going on. What they didn't know at this point, in less than 20 years, the whole system would be abolished. The temple, that magnificent structure, would be completely destroyed. Not one stone would be left upon another the priesthood would be abolished. The Jews would be scattered throughout the world. 
It, it would all be over very soon. They didn't know that at this point. And so they were feeling like, well, maybe we've made a mistake, but the author is, is challenging them and reminding them that to go back would be to depart from the living God. In chapter 10, verses 28 and 29, uh, the warning is stated unequivocally. Let me read it to you. He says, anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the spirit of grace? That would be what they would be doing if they were to return to Judaism. And so the epistle is a series of warnings. And there's application for us today as well. Because I know, and perhaps you know, people who came to Jesus, were following him, were excited about him, were serving him, were living with expectation of blessing and the return of Christ and so forth. But as time went on, difficulties arose, challenges came. The Lord didn't come back when uh, they thought he was going to come back. And so they've decided to go back to the world. I know people who have done that, and maybe you do too. You see, this, this passage is a warning for all of us, even today, against that kind of thing. Now, finally, the theme of Hebrews is the supremacy of Jesus over all. You see, they were considering going back to the former things, back to Abraham and back to Moses and, and David and all, all of those things that were, that were represented. Uh, but what the author is, is going to show them is that Jesus is he has supremacy over all of these things. He's greater than the angels even. He's greater than Abraham, Moses, Aaron, Joshua, David, the prophets. He's greater than all of them. That's how he argues his case as we go into the epistle. He shows that the covenant, the new covenant, is a better covenant established upon better promises. His sacrifice in contrast to the temple sacrifices, his sacrifice, Jesus' sacrifice, is a once and forever sacrifice that can never be repeated and is sufficient to cleanse the sin of all men forever. These are the things that he is going to remind them of. And then he's going to begin with a reminder of the person of Christ, who he actually is, that he is the brightness of God's glory. He is the express image of his person, that he's the one who upholds all things by the word of his power, that he is God the Son. And so... That's kind of a, an introductory overview of what we're going to find as we make our way through the epistle. But the first verse reads this way, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his son. So this is where he starts. God in the past, 
In times past, yes, he spoke in various ways uh, to the fathers by the prophets. The author here is referring to the revelation that came through what we commonly call the Old Testament. And it was through Moses and the prophets that God spoke in time past. And there was always more to come because the message of the Old Testament was incomplete. You see, the Old Testament is what you would call anticipatory. It's, it's anticipating something. It's always pointing to something beyond itself. You know, one of the great tragedies of, of the modern uh, Jew is the, the fact that they haven't recognized their Messiah. They're, they're still looking back to the Old Testament and, and really they're looking back 2,500 years since God has spoken. And they're, you know, embracing this and immersing themselves in the law and trying to find God and righteousness through that. Uh, they recognized on, on the one hand that, that, that the law and the prophets pointed to the Messiah. The tragedy is that they missed him when he came. And so here we see them today laboring to keep the Sabbath and all of these different things that they've developed over the centuries and forgetting that the, the main, that the gist of the Old Testament scripture was the messianic promise. As Jesus would say to those uh, leaders back in his day, you search the scriptures, in them you think you have eternal life. These are they which testify of me. The scriptures pointed to Jesus. And so in the past, in times past, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, and the term last days here is a reference to the final period of history. As you go back in history, you have the, these different periods. Some people call them dispensations, where you see that God has worked with people uh, at certain periods of time in, in slightly different ways. The overarching uh, approach that God has taken to men has been through grace. But we have, say, the way God dealt with uh, man from the time of Adam to the time of Noah. Then a, a slightly different arrangement from Noah to Abraham. And then from Abraham to Moses, a slightly different arrangement. Uh, similar, but, but slightly different. And then from Moses to David. And then from David, we come ultimately to Jesus. And what we've come to now is the final period in the sense that the, the way God is now dealing with men through Jesus is the, the fulfillment of everything that preceded it. And this is the final way that God has revealed himself. Where in the past, there was always uh, further revelation that would come. There was uh, what we call sometimes a progressive revelation. That progressive revelation reached its climax in the coming of Jesus. So he's now the, the final message of God. And that's what, um, that's what the author is referring to when he says, but in these last days, the revelation of God is complete through the Son. And so he says in uh, verse two, 
that God has in these last days spoken to us by his son. Or I think a better translation at this point is in his son. We'll talk about that in a moment. So this is what the author begins with. Jesus is God's final message to the world. And this was written 2,000 years ago. Jesus is God's final message to the world. There is no other message. There is no further message. Now, some people have the erroneous idea that, well, you know, uh, God sends different prophets to different people in different uh, parts of the world and cultures. And some, you know, sometimes people make statements like, well, you're Christians because you grew up in the West. And uh, Christianity is the religion for the West. But if you were born in the East, you would be a Buddhist or you would be a Hindu. And their idea is that it's all the same thing anyway. And it, it just really, you know, it, it doesn't matter which one you choose. It, it, a lot of it has to do with where you were born, how you were brought up and so forth. But this, of course, is contrary to the message of scripture and it's contrary to what we are reading right here. There is no other message. God's final message to man is through Jesus. And there, there is no other message, nor is there a further message. So Jesus brings everything, as I said, to a climax. And what we have with the apostles is they're just taking what Jesus said and did and they're interpreting it and applying it in the pages of the New Testament. So we should never, no one should have ever expected a prophet beyond Jesus, a prophet that would come and give us more understanding about God or give us a clearer way of salvation. That's not possible. So when we're faced with something like Islam, for example, which began in the seventh century, uh, we have to recognize. Now, Islam and Christianity are mutually exclusive. They cannot both be true. If what the New Testament says about Jesus is right and true, then Islam is demonstrably false. Because the claim is that there's another prophet who's come, who's actually superior to Jesus, who has a further revelation and a, and a new understanding. What the author here is making clear is that that, that is not a possibility. So anyone claiming to know God or represent God or serve God who at the same time rejects the apostolic revelation of the Son of God as spelled out in the pages of the New Testament is deceived and a deceiver. So this is a deception. Anyone who would embrace the idea that there's a messenger or a message beyond Christ himself. Now, this statement, God has spoken to us in his son, is similar to what John said in his gospel. In chapter 1, verse 18 of the gospel of John, John said this, No one has seen God at any time. The one and only son who is in the bosom or the heart of the father, he has declared him or he has brought him out into the open. So the author here of this epistle is really saying the same thing. Now, as I said a moment ago, my, my translation reads, uh, he has spoken to us by his son, but the Greek word is the word that it can be translated by, but it's more often translated in. 
It's the, the Greek preposition en is the way we would spell it. Uh, in English, we would spell it in. And you might say, well, what's the difference? Well, we could say, and it's true that God has spoken to us by his son. Of course, Jesus is that messenger of God. But when you think about it as God has spoken to us in his son, it changes it just slightly. But I think this is really what the author intended us to understand is that God has not only spoken to us uh, by his son, he's spoken to us in his son in as much as his son is the message. You see, Jesus is the message. We don't simply look to what Jesus said. We look to who Jesus is. And it's who Jesus is that is really God's final message to the world. God's message to the world is Jesus Christ. He's the message. His life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his coming again, all of those things, that's God's message to the world. And so that's what the author, I think, is intending us to lay hold of. So the word spoken by the prophets about God was, of course, accurate, but it was only part of the story, the full story would be told in his son. So what has God told us in his son? Many, many things. Let me just touch on a few. What, what, is, God, what, what is the message that, that has been brought to the world in the son? What, what is God saying to us? Well, first of all, we would have to say that God is saying, I love you. That's what God is saying. And he's saying it to the whole world. You know, I was reading through John's gospel again recently, and, and the thing that was standing out to me as I was reading through it was just the universal perspective of John's gospel. Um, John is writing as a Jew, but his whole perspective is universal, that Jesus didn't just come as the Messiah of Israel, but his ministry was to be universal to extend to all people everywhere. And so it's John who records for us what Jesus said, for God so loved the world. Not merely the Jewish nation. God so loved the world. What has God spoken to us in his son? He's spoken to us, I love you. That he loves us despite, of ourselves, despite ourselves, despite our sin, despite all that... Uh, we have done to merit his judgment and his wrath. God loves us. And that's what Jesus communicates to us. He said it in this way. He said, greater love has no one than to lay down one's life for his friends. And he said, that's what I do. So God has spoken in his son, his love. I love you. I will forgive you is another thing that God has spoken. God has spoken to us through Christ. Christ did not come, as he said, to judge the world, to condemn the world, but he came to save the world. And it would be our sin that would bring uh, on his judgment. It would bring our condemnation. But what does he do with our sin? Instead of judging our sin, he forgives our sin. Jesus came with that message 
of forgiveness and that message of cleansing. I will cleanse you. I will cleanse you of your sin. All of that, the guilt and the stain and the, the, the perversity that is, is there because of sin in your heart and how that manifests itself in destructive behavior uh, toward yourself and others. I, I'm going to cleanse you of all of that. And this is exactly what he has done. And I will receive you would be another message. You see, the, the great message of the new covenant, and that's what Hebrews is really all about. It's about this new covenant is that we can come into a personal relationship with God. You see, this was not the experience of the average Jew prior to the coming of Jesus. The, the idea that God was your father in a personal sense, that God was intimately associated in caring for you and, and loving you, that was not an idea in, in the Jewish mind. They saw themselves collectively as the people of God. We're all part of God's family and Israel is God's son. But the personal aspect of it wasn't there. But the prophet Jeremiah said that the new covenant, this would be one of the chief features of the new covenant. God said, in that day, I will write my law in their hearts and uh, in their minds, and all of them shall know me personally from the least to the greatest. And that's the message that Jesus is bringing, that God is not a God that's far off. That God is no longer uh, hidden behind the veil that can only be uh, passed through once a year with the blood to make atonement. But now that veil is torn and all people can come in and experience a relationship with God. That is what would be included in him receiving us. But then I will carry you would be another thing or I will take care of you. I will guide you. I will bless you. I will uh, protect you. I will provide for you. These are all of the things. And blessing. Jesus came to bring us the message that God is a blessing God. Many, many times in the scripture, God, God desiring to bless his people would uh, tell tell the many ways that blessing would come. We read in the first Psalm today, blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord. That's just one example of the many uh, times where God was communicating to his people how to experience his blessing. Well, through Jesus, God brings us the blessing and he invites us to come to him again personally. He invites us to follow him. He promises to be with us forever. So what has God communicated to us through his son, in his son? What is the message of Jesus to the world? It's the message that God loves us and God has reconciled us to himself, that we can know him personally and have a relationship with him here and now that will extend into eternity. This is what God has spoken. Jesus is God's final word to mankind. 
And now, as I said, having started here, the author is just going to go on and he's going to systematically show the superiority, the supremacy of Christ over everything that came before. And in the end, coming to the conclusion of the epistle, the great appeal to, to hold fast to what you have. You, you have the ultimate. There's nothing better. You could never improve on what you've got. At all cost, hold on to what you have. And there's that, the reminder through uh, the, the, the 11th chapter of all of those saints of old who, who did the, these great things by faith. And they, the promises that they had were so uh, much less than the promises that we have. And if they did what they did, how much more? Are we to persevere and to succeed spiritually based upon what we have now in this new covenant? And so, as we close today, God has spoken. Jesus is his final word. Are you hearing him? Are you responding to him? Is he at work in your life? Are you allowing him to work in your life? Are you living with the expectation that God is speaking? Because he is. He's speaking through his son. And he's not silent. He's speaking through his written word. He's declared the future. He's told us where history is headed and all of those things. But then he's speaking into your life personally and into my life. And he wants to to be involved with us on a daily basis. He wants to encourage us and comfort us and, and guide and direct us and all of those things. Are we hearing what he is saying? Are we responding to him? I hope so. Because that's where the blessing is. And God wants to bless us.